My journey to the nation's highest court. Much like an athlete who dreams of winning championships, lawyers dream of having a chance to argue a case in the United States Supreme Court. My appearing in the United States Supreme Court was made possible because of all I learned growing up in Flint. I traveled along the bumpy roads of my life, all while inspired by my dreams. Indeed, I had arrived at some very beautiful places. The Supreme Court of the United States was certainly one of those places. It was also a very long ways from my Dixieland home on Pengali Road in the city of Flint. It was even further away from garage puppet shows complete with ketchup as blood, catching glow-in-the-dark pollywogs in polluted GM swamps, and Thanksgiving Day dinners with raccoon as the main course at Grandma and Grandpa's house. There was one very profound regret about my experience in, in the nation's highest court. My mother, Anna, who put her heart and soul into my being able to realize my dreams, could not have been there on that day sitting in the front row of the Supreme Court of the United States, watching her son argue. That was the day her son reached the pinnacle of the American legal profession. Mom never wanted me to abandon law to enter politics. Telling mom that I wanted to run for the Michigan House of Representatives, she pointedly asked me, well then why the hell did you go to law school if you're gonna go do that? 25 years later, her question was answered right there in that hallowed courtroom. It was too late for mom to see my dream come true. Looking back at 2003, my star was definitely in the right place. The documentary feature movie, Bowling for Columbine, in which I appeared, garnered an Academy Award. I participated in the pre-Oscar festivities in Hollywood and argued a case before the United States Supreme Court all in the same month. Just so you know, there's a better chance of winning the Michigan Lottery than having a case heard in the Michigan Supreme Court. Getting to this surreal moment in my career took many of the lessons I learned in the Dixieland subdivision while growing up. Be polite, work hard, stand up for what you think is right, and take chances. Luck plays no part in this equation. However, one lesson I learned in college was that the harder I worked, the luckier I got. Prosecutors usually prevailed in most murder prosecutions. However, in this unusual gang-style murder case, the prosecution was in for an uphill fight. The case arose from a murder outside a homecoming dance at Hamity High School in Mount Morris Township, Michigan, which is just outside the city of Flint. A jury convicted the defendant, Duyan Vincent, a first-degree premeditated murder. This case was not about me, however. It was about gangs, shooting guns, and murder in a public school in broad daylight. Duyan Vincent's conviction set the stage for a 12-year legal battle that ultimately ended up before the United States Supreme Court. It became the first Genesee County criminal case to receive the attention of the nation's highest court. Vincent challenged his conviction in the Michigan Court of Appeals and won. 
court set aside his convictions and ordered him resentenced for second-degree murder. He found that trial judge Donald R. Freeman erred by first acquitting Vincent of first-degree murder, then later reconsidering his ruling and allowing the jury to convict Vincent on that charge. In setting aside the first-degree murder conviction, the court ruled that Judge Freeman violated Vincent's constitutional rights by twice placing him in jeopardy. In other words, it was a double jeopardy case. The Michigan Attorney General who assisted us believed the battle was now a hopeless cause. They recommended not continuing this uphill struggle. They quit the case. That is when Assistant Prosecutor Donald A. Keebler, a 36-year veteran prosecutor, stepped in. He wanted to take the case to the U.S. Supreme Court. One thing I learned most about while growing up in Flint was how to confront hopeless situations. You can't win if you quit. Mr. Keebler, we're not quitting. Go for it. The odds were long that the court would never even hear the case, much less prevail. The United States Supreme Court receives approximately 9,000 requests for review each year. They accept approximately 80 for argument. My case was in the ditch and nothing short of a miracle was ever going to keep it going. When I learned that the court struggled for weeks to just decide to accept this case, my worries grew. The prosecution had lost in three of the four appellate courts that heard the matter prior to the Supreme Court. Uphill might not fully describe this situation. Perhaps we'll never know what happened in those five meetings in which the justices deliberated. On January 10, 2003, they agreed to hear the case. That decision resulted in the opportunity of a lifetime for me. My job was to convince the nation's highest court to settle a split of authority between numerous federal and state courts on the issue of double jeopardy and mid-trial acquittals. If the Supreme Court rules in favor of the prosecution, Vincent will remain in prison serving a life sentence without parole. If it rules for Vincent, he will be resentenced for second-degree murder and would be immediately eligible for parole. Soon the argument advanced and the murder case garnered the support of the United States government, as well as 21 states' attorney general. The United States Solicitor General received 10 minutes for oral argument. The prosecution had 30 minutes to make the case with the justices. The preparations were intense. There were moot court practices in Lansing and Washington, D.C., with some of America's brightest lawyers posing as justices. Like finals week in law school, I pushed myself hard and often late into the night. There were no Flint hillbillies amongst these Ivy League lawyers who went to law school, law schools that would only laugh off my application for admission. It is likely none of them ever looked a murderer in the eyes, pointed at them, and asked a jury to find him guilty. There were some advantages to coming from the school of hard knocks. The clerk of the Supreme Court, dressed in a weird outfit like he was going to a New Year's Eve party, he took us into an ornate side room to explain the rules and 
protocols of the courtroom of the Supreme Court. He didn't address them. He said, don't address them as judge or your honor, but as justice so-and-so. It seemed like this court was kind of picky. Being a hillbilly at heart, we don't sweat formalities of position, but the clerk was a good, had a good point to remind us because calling them Sandra, Ruth, Clarence, or John Paul seemed perhaps a bit too friendly. Back home, if you weren't too familiar with your elder, my dad told me, just call them out as Mr. or Ma'am. I learned that Southern politeness thing from my dad. He used to call women out as honey or sugar or baby in his day. But I knew women, women's right crusader Ruth Bader Ginsburg wasn't going to be good with that approach. I finally entered the ornate courtroom where my children, Anique, 16 at the time, Michael, 13, and Brittany, 12, were sitting in the front row. They were awaiting one of the most memorable civic lessons of their young lives. Michael had a white shirt on with a preppy pullover sweater. He was J. Crew all the way. And he had that pained look similar to that of him at a Sunday Mass. For Brittany, this was the social event of the year. She was dressed very fashionable and fancy as young girls love to do. She was ready to watch this show for all the details of how people looked. What was being said was not so important to her. Then there was my oldest, Anique, had a glimmer of insight that this was indeed a big deal. She was focused on whether dad would stumble and use Flint street language or regular English. You know, the kind you learn in a Catholic school from a nun. That was a moment to savor. Once at the council table, I nervously organized nine pages of prepared notes. The antique podium captivated me because it had a handle on the side like a mon monkey grinder thing. For the life of me, I didn't get it. I wondered if it was something I was supposed to know about. Well, it was a few years later after much reflection, I figured out that the monkey grinder handle thing was to raise the height of the podium. Sitting nearby was Theodore Olson, sometimes called Ted. He was the Solicitor General of the United States. He was there to observe the oral argument. He was the lawyer who argued Bush versus Gore. You know, the case where the Supreme Court decision just a year before, right there on that spot, uh, this and he did, he did his argument in, with this monkey grinder podium. That case literally made George Bush the President of the United States. My opponent was David Moran. He was sitting at the council table. He was a professor at the University of Michigan who was formerly, formerly with the State Office of Appellate Defender. After I retired in 2002, they didn't want me on their list of lawyers. His law school that wouldn't let me through its front door and as far as I'm, I could see, he was smug and arrogant like most of those Michigan Wolverines. My opponent underestimated me in every way, and I loved it. I learned in Flint politics that being the underdog is preferred. Being an underdog describes nearly every stage of my life. 
A few, a few months before this argument, I invited Professor Moran to lunch in Detroit across from his new law office perch at Wayne State University. I had never met him before and just wanted to size him up. He thought it was kind of a weird idea. I learned early in my career in order to reduce performance anxiety in a courtroom, it's important to sit in that courtroom while it is in session. I flew to Washington, D.C. to sit in on some cases. Getting a measure of your opponent is important, too. It helps to read your opponent by intangible cues. Like basketball, if you have to make adjustments in a courtroom, you have to make adjustments in the courtroom on the fly. If your opponent has a temper or he uh, has a know-it-all demeanor, etc., then you adjust your game and exploit it to your advantage. One of the most important things I learned from years of arguing cases and being involved in politics was that if you want to win the hearts and minds of jurors or the public, you had better argue to the middle of the case or the, or the policy you were seeking. Extremists get the headlines, but lawyers who find the sweet spot in the middle win the game. A courtroom is like a stage. You have a captive audience. Those justices had to suffer me for the time allotted. My goal wasn't to just show up for bragging rights. I wanted to win. And not just win. I wanted to kick that arrogant lawyer's ass. The meeting in Detroit at the Coney Island with a defense lawyer had its desired effect. It lit me on fire to prove he wasn't any better in the courtroom than me. Once the big show started, it was obvious that Moran had a, was a lot better at writing briefs than dancing in the courtroom under fire. He struggled at reading the justices that day. Justice Ginsburg engaged in a withering exchange with Moran. My experiences in courtrooms involved thinking on my feet. Moran's experiences were writing and research at a desk. My skills learned both in the streets of Flint and in the county courthouse were that my fastballs were placed exactly where I wanted them to go. I took that confidence to Washington. While, I'm, while I am at this on this rant, what really gave me another gear to win was his condescending interaction with me, lumping me with all prosecutors who he thinks don't care about poor black people from Flint. He was wrong on that one. He never met anyone like me before because I had more education than him and a whole bunch of street smarts earned from the University of Dixieland subdivision. My guess is that until Moran started representing poor people on appeals, he had few encounters with poor black people. My hunch was proven right when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg went after him with questions about what he would tell his client if he had been at, at the trial and been that Vincent's lawyer in that Flint courthouse. Moran turned red in the face and began to flounder badly and never gave an answer. I knew at that moment he had lost the case. Anyway, back to the Supreme Court. I shook his hand and wished him well. I, learned, I leaned in his direction and joked. I said, you're very lucky I have a C in my last name. Taking that with good humor, he shot back. No, I am lucky my last name is not Gore. Then suddenly, 
The clerk called the court with an admonition to draw near to the business of the United States Supreme Court, and the justices appeared. On cue, and like a vaudeville act, a loud bell rang, and the velvet curtains opened. There were nine justices who were standing behind the bench staring at me. The show was to begin. My first thoughts were, these, these guys are really old. They're as old as Moses. Leaving the court, I thought to myself, those justices were a hell of a lot smarter than me. Justice William Rehnquist then called the case. I arose and nervously addressed the court with a traditional salutation. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. I confidently de delivered my introduction and thus began the longest and most thrilling 20 minutes of my legal career. There I stood fielding questions from the justices of the United States Supreme Court. All that preparation kicked in. All that I had learned as a kid in the streets of Flint, Michigan gave me the will to win. This was no different than playing basketball to win on the asphalt courts in Dixieland subdivision. I wanted to win. I didn't want to win. I really, really wanted to win for all the right reasons. I kept thinking, if I got to tell my grandkids about this case, I sure in the hell didn't want to tell them that I lost it. The justice had zeroed in on questions about four sentences into my argument. Just, Justice Scalia wanted to drag me off into some radical far-right swamp with an argument I didn't agree with at all. Being a prosecutor, my guess was he was going to vote for my position, whatever they were in this case. It was those on the liberal side of the equation I wanted to convince. In order to win nine to nothing, it was necessary to find the middle of this group and go at it as hard as I could. My heart was pumping hard like I was riding my bike up the Rocky Mountains. My ears were beet red. I left, I left having left every bit of myself in that ornate courtroom. I left there knowing that all the courage and effort, all the risk taking and all the bobbing and weaving in that courtroom necessary to win it was the best that I could give. I also left with two white quill pins compliments of the court to commemorate this once-in-a-lifetime experience. I won the case nine to nothing.